Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Health Matters. Today we're going to have the great pleasure of a, a second visit from Dr. Stephen Quay. Dr. Quay is the author of the first physician scientist written book on surviving the pandemic, Stay Safe. He received his MD and PhD from the University of Michigan. As a postdoctoral fellow in the chemistry department at MIT with Nobel laureate Gobina Karana, he was a resident at Harvard MGH Hospital and spent almost a decade on the faculty of Stanford University School of Medicine. A TED Talk he delivered on breast cancer prevention has been viewed 220,000 times. His 300-plus contributions to medicine have been cited over 9,900 times, placing him in the top 1% of scientists worldwide. He holds 87 patents and has invented seven FDA-approved pharmaceuticals, which have helped over 80 million people. He'll be with us shortly. Please stay tuned. And welcome back to Health Matters again. This is Dr. Ned Hoke, and today we're going to get the opportunity to visit with Dr. Stephen Quay, the author of a new book, and I call it a manual, Staying Safe, A Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus. So uh, in Staying Safe, you quote from the famous Chinese classic, The Art of War. The quote is, the art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death a road to either safety or to ruin. It is a subject of inquiry which can on no account be neglected. Here we are today when our U.S. senators are deeply engaged in their version of war-seeking to justify a Supreme Court nominee committed to unraveling health service protections. We have seen over the last months a federal administration unwilling or unable to effectively address our population's needs amidst the most compelling pandemic of our lifetimes. A thoroughly unwise and unsound chief executive committed to his personal power needs over his duties for the common good. This does indeed seem like a time to remember Sun Tzu's teaching from Chinese ancient history. So uh, that said, uh, Stephen Quay, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Well, welcome. It's great to be talking to uh, to you, Ned, and and to your listeners. Great. Well, for our listeners' uh, benefit, you're the founder and CEO of a Seattle-based clinical stage biopharmaceutical company. You've served in a long medical science career that includes MIT, Harvard, MGH, and the extended period in the faculty at Stanford University. You've invented seven FDA-approved pharmaceuticals. You hold 87 patents. You have deep, relevant experience which have enabled you to authors staying safe. But what got you into writing this important manual? So, um, you know, let's you know, dial back to January, if any of us can imagine. 
Um, and I began to hear about, so I, I spend an hour a day in the general medical literature on what's going on in the world of medicine outside of breast cancer, which is Atosa's other project. Began to see this, this virus cropping up in, in, in China. Um, had some thoughts about its structure, the structure of the surface of it, uh, because it was very reminiscent of about five years of work I had done at Stanford. So um, I, I immediately began to think, well, gosh, maybe I could come up with some therapeutics, some chemical vaccine-like drugs that would could treat this virus. So that was one set of thoughts I had. And then as February, March, and April went along, I began to see so much misinformation on the inter- Internet about the virus. And you wear a mask, you not wear a mask. Well, you know, what are all the proper things? I said, you know, this, this is ridiculous. I'm going to imagine that I have, you know, you know, family and patients in my in my waiting room, and I want to I want to set up what is the best uh, medical practice around this disease, COVID, this virus, SARS-CoV-2. What are the best practices from the, the literature and from what we learn along the way that, that that can be done? And so, I ended up wrapping them up in a book that came out in uh, July. Uh, and uh, it's available on Amazon uh, in a Kindle form. It's available on my website in a paper form. The profits go to a military volunteer group helping in COVID communities. So it's basically, uh, number one, the virus is scary, but number two, it's manageable. Number three, it behaves in certain ways, so it allows us to respond to it in certain ways. And there's lots of things you can do uh, to not get it, things you can do if you do get it, things you can do if you end up in the hospital. So, um, you know, I, I, if I could continue just for a second. Please. No, 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 I'm not in a hurry. We're, we're, we're taking our time. Yep. The practice of medicine is, is more arts and science, but there's a lot of science involved. But the art side involves the observation that the worst time in any patient's course with any disease, well, no matter what the disease is, is the time between sort of knowing or not knowing the diagnosis and having a plan. Now, you, you can have the worst disease in the world and have a life expectancy, you know, under a year, but if you have a plan for what you can do in that year to make the maximum quality of life you have, you, you know, that's all, that's all any of us can do. So the purpose of the book is to give us all a plan uh, as opposed to just sitting there and saying, okay, this thing is out there. It can kill me. What do I do? That That's, that's kind of the worst state to be in. And, you know, if you face this and if you have it, if you get really sick, you know, I'll try to help you through it. But in all cases, I'm going to be there with my plan for what to do at each stage of the disease. I'll stop there, Ned, and, uh, and turn it back to you. Well, that's, that's of course, <laughs> it's fun to listen to you say that because some of our listeners may be hearing us again, realizing that Dr. Quay was with us four months ago. And, of course, at that time, that's one of the things that most inspired me to spend time with uh, Dr. Quay was that the exactly as he just said this 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 manual provides a plan provides an outline provides uh, considerations on all the well I can't say all but most of the very most important uh, considerations that should you should you be afraid of the the disease should you contract the disease should you how should you prepare yourself in terms of resilience and so on and what uh, Dr. Quay does is he walks us through all these different th- these different possibilities that he has just given us a little taste of, or at least the, the sense of, and in it so that with in this one book, you can you can have a, a whole map of how to live with the virus, how to stay alive, and as you say very pointedly and I think importantly, how to stay sane, 
And one of the things, of course, that drives so many of us literally crazy, watching our government, you know, flout about uh, in, a, in an awful way. And it, it, it's interesting. I was just before I came to this, uh, this visit with uh, Dr. Steve here, I, I heard on, on the radio that, that Taiwan has had seven th se no, 500 cases and only s seven people die. So there must be something somewhere that, that people know how to manage the situation. And I listened with great care with the, the, the radio people talking about, well, how did they do it? You know, what did they do? And uh, many of the things that uh, uh, Dr. Quay mentions in his manual are uh, considered in the, the, this wonderful response in terms of the ability of the Taiwanese government to, to manage the situation more effectively. And there you are in Taiwan. So. Um, I, I praise the Lord, I guess. So, 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 um, yeah, I, go ahead. So, no, I mean, so the additional, additional fact is, uh, it, it, you know, as Taiwan is a small island, you know, 23 million people, even smaller in California, 60 miles from the coast of China. But at any point in time, 6% of our 23 million people are on mainland China. They're either doing work or they're vacationing or they're seeing family. So if there was any any spot that should have had a China-like or U.S.-like uh, incident, it's, it's Taiwan. But as Ned said, they, did, they, they, uh, they got hurt in 2003 with the first SARS, and they said never again, and they meant it. And their CDC did a pretty amazing job. We can go into that if you want to. Uh, it's not relevant because the U.S. is not doing did not do, excuse me, in the early stages, and now cannot do with the level of disease what, what, what it's done. You, you either get this at the beginning or you never get it. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that struck me, too, as very important is this, the, the story that I just heard about Taiwan. As they said, what, what Taiwan did was they worked very diligently to be sure that the, the citizenry trusted the government. So then the government could do the various things it needed to do to to come to grips with the situation in a forthright manner, but they had the population with them. So, uh, is there anything more to say about that? No, there, there, there may be some cultural basis that the population is more willing to, to be with the uh, with the government than the free-range Americans, as I call them. Right. But, um, but uh, no, no, it, it's absolutely right. They were, um, they, it didn't get politicized. It was just the CDC, you know, the senior government officials, uh, you know, our PhDs and, and scientists and, and doctors, so uh, they, they have a strong science, you know, a private, private sector science experience in the senior management of the, senior uh, executives of the country, so uh, it certainly did help, and, and uh, again, I think the Taiwanese people have a memory of the first infection, the first SARS, which said, hey, this is serious, we need to get a hold of it. Right. So now, to <laughs> going forward, um, before we get into the important details in the manual, please let our listeners know about your recent connection with the White House. Tell us about this, if you would. Well, you know, um, I am. I, I, I tr well, I, I try to be a scientist first, and in this in this current environment, I try to be as apolitical as possible. I have political opinions, but I keep them to myself. I feel like if I'm talking as a doctor or a scientist, I need to just talk about the facts and my expertise and not get out of my lane. So, um, you know, what, I guess I guess my take on the fact of the president getting, uh, you know, uh, COVID-19 and what, two weeks ago or whenever the, the diagnosis was, was, 
that. Um, in some ways, I was surprised he got it as late as he did because of um, what, what at least in public was an apparent, um, uh, you know, not not following you know typical guidelines in that. So, so that was kind of one observation. Um, and I, you know, I think just as an American, I was gratified that he could go into the hospital and get through it as quickly as he could. And it shows the power of early management. It shows the power of what we've learned in the last six to eight months. But um, I, I do think my manual is important now. I think it was always important. I think when we talked four months ago, there was some sense, well, maybe this is going to go away and maybe someone's going to burn it out. Uh, and I've always had a minority opinion that, unfortunately, this thing is going to have to, every, all seven billion of us are going to have to face this in some way or other. Uh, and therefore, you know, this is with us for the long haul. And so I just said, well, you know, maybe the folks in the White House could use use some copies of this book, so I said, uh, in the classic American self-promotion uh, that we do, uh, I, sent them 50, I sent them 50 copies, I put on a press release, uh, and, uh, you know, other people other people got my book and hopefully benefited from it, so. Did any, um, no, no, as, no. As I, as I joke some people, I tried to write it at a, at a, you know, middle school or early high school reading level, so. I hope it's not too challenging for some people, but um, in any case, it's... Uh, well, yeah. I, I think that that, that, that that was... That's my connection. I think, well, I think that's part of the beauty of it. Is I'm, I'm happy to hear you talk about middle school level because it is so readable. I mean, that's the other part. When I sat down with it the first time, I, I kept reading this thing and I went, this is wonderful because it's so easy to read. And so it's... Uh, um, and, and there, when it could be awkward and difficult and filled with scientific jargon or, or so, uh, so generalized that you wouldn't, feel, you wouldn't feel any of the edge of things, you wouldn't feel any of the sharp edges that go with things. There, somehow, so anyway, I really celebrate the, the quality of the writing as, as well as the information. So um, now, what, as I t told our listeners, and several times since we last spoke, actually, in terms of uh, the one of the things that caught my attention, just jumped right out at me, was the spray, the salt spray deactivating the virus on the mask story. So, uh, and I I went to the 2017 science reports and read the actual report. So maybe for our listeners and who maybe have heard me rail on about this uh, several times, maybe you could give us a little backstory on that, and then also update us if you would, in terms of what. Having said that, and having put that out as you have, what, what, how is that play? How is it playing out? I mean, how is it? How are people taking on that information about that particular part of the tr of the teaching in the manual? And has there been any, you know, significant pushback that made you s feel that maybe that you over overstated or th that you said more than you might have? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's good. So. Um, the, the field, the, the sort of the, the topic in the field of what we uh, of, of what this has to do with is um, what is the role of masks in stopping disease, either from a patient who has it, so spreading the disease outward from a patient, uh, or or preventing getting it if you're sitting in an environment with patients. Um, and you know, the literature is pretty clear that masks uh, help. <laughs> you know, right. we can get in the weeds about whether they help 
you know, 90% or, or right. 99%. Right. Uh, one of the one of the math challenges you have to deal with in in viruses and in, in infections is is sort of what are called logarithms. So, you know, a lot of uh, like Listerine or something, a lot of consumer products will talk about getting rid of, you know, 99.9 percent of, of viruses or bacteria. And you think, wow, that's really good. It's only you know one percent point one percent. But but the challenge is that if you start with a let's say you start with a hundred billion. 99.9% killing, you know, it, you know, gets you, you know, you, you still have 100 million viruses. Right. You still have 100 million bacteria. So, so uh, this idea of using logs, so instead of talking about 99%, we talk about a whole number. So a million is six in logarithmic language. So 100,000 is five, 10,000 is four. Right. So there you, you can say, well, okay, a mask by itself might take you from six to five or six to four and a half. Uh, a cloth mask might take you from six to three or, or these sorts of things. So it's very clear that, that masks have uh, a one to three logarithm reduction in, in, in virus particles. Can you do better? And so I began to look around and I said, yes, yes, there probably is. Um, this paper that was published in 2017 by a, by a, a, a bioengineer said, you know, if you sprayed, so I'm sorry. Let's talk about how you get infected with a mask. So, well, actually, actually, the, actually, the Steve, virus, Steve, hang on, Steve, hang on, Steve. I just realized. I just looked at the clock. We do need to take a quick our first break. We're going to be talking about the salt and the mask and all this very important stuff. Dr. Ned Hoke today speaking with Dr. Stephen Quay. We're talking about his new book, Staying Safe: A Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. And welcome back to Dr. Ned Hoke today, joined by Dr. Stephen Quay. We're talking about his new book, Staying Safe, A Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus. And we were just getting into the, the weeds on the salt mask question. And I'm, please go ahead, if you would, please, Steve. Sure. So, so uh, cloth masks work really well. You throw, them in the, you throw them in the washing machine with your socks, uh, you know, to clean them. Uh, wash and dry them. Uh, have seven different colors for every day. You can have day of the week masks if you like. Uh, uh, you know. So, um, uh, but but can you make it better? And so the concept is that uh, the virus is flying in the air either in liquid droplets that are pretty big, or in liquid, or in what are called aerosols, which are still water surrounding the virus. The virus is never floating just as a particle with no water. It's way too small for that, um, and it doesn't exist in that state. So uh, what happens is the, the, the aerosol droplets or the water droplets um, hit the mask or, or get, get, get stopped by the mask, and the cloth mask, what the cloth mask does is use what's called a torturous path to get through so that the, the droplet never can get through all the way to your, to your mouth, to your nose, and so it, it hits the mask somewhere. And it, it just wets the mask, right? So it's like a, a, a dry a kitchen towel with a spot on the counter. You, you put it down, the spot gets soaked up, it gets wicked into the towel, and it gets wicked into the mask. Right. So once it's wicked into the mask, what can you do? Well, if the mask has been pre-treated, excuse me, with, uh, with a liquid salt and a liquid soap solution, the recipe's in the, in the book, it's really simple. But so what happens is, the droplet, before it dries on the mask, will dissolve some of that salt. 
Okay, so you're with me so far. So, not, so now you have a drop of water with a virus and a little bit of salt. Well, if the water dries, as it naturally will, the water's going to evaporate, what you do is it, the salt gets more and more concentrated. So you end up with, you know, that what, what the edge of, if you've ever been to Salt Lake, you know, in, in, uh, in Salt Lake City or in the Dead Sea, you see this white, white rim around the lake, and what that is is dried salt. And what that does is that actually, that absolutely explodes the virus. Uh, it gives you between three logs, so a thousand, to four logs, ten thousand better killing of the virus. So, um, you know, it's scientifically proven in the paper that Ned talks about and, and referenced in the in the book. Uh, you don't need to read the paper to have it work. It's a simple thing you make in the kitchen. You you put it in a spray can like you would, you know, spray your plants or something. Um, and you just spray the outside of the mask the night before it dries. It doesn't change the color or texture or anything, and it gives you uh, extra protection. I've had absolutely no feedback from any any scientists around that. They they scratch they, they scratch their heads and they say, "What the heck are you talking about?" And I say, "Read the paper and let's talk tomorrow." And we call up on Brown and said, "Oh, I get it. This is really cool. Smart idea. <laughs> Not my idea, but I but I adapted it to the book." Sure. Well. It, well, it it just floored me to be. Honest. I'll say it again. It just I, I looked at that and I went, if this is true, wow. And of course now, just very recently, for instance, I, perhaps you know Frontline PBS, the uh, you know the, uh, the the program that shows sort of in, uh, investigative reporting. What they had recently was a uh, a piece on h hospital equipment, and they're talking about the PPEs largely, and they were saying, you know, the art supply chains in a nightmare because we really don't have enough of this stuff and of course what we've been hearing from our nurses and from many people in uh, in, in various fields uh, that they simply do not have enough material and enough and of course then there's there's all this talk about having to use the mask over and over and there's you know crying and gnashing of teeth about reusing n95 masks and yet what the advantage of the salt treatment seems to me to be is that in fact it makes reusing the mask much easier and much safer? Do, don't you? Do you agree? I do, and and, and to be very honest, uh, we use masks here in Taiwan. If you go to the movies, they want you to wear a mask. Uh, uh, so uh, yeah, I I, I, I spray my mask uh, it, it, just according to the thing in the book. I mean, and of course, the the as a scientist, the challenge is if you don't get the infection, is it because the mask really works? Because you didn't get you know. You can't prove a negative. Who cares? But, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, exactly. Who cares? So, has there been any? Has there been any kind of at all? I mean, at all? Has there been any kind of scientific pushback to that idea? Absolutely not. Absolutely Good. not. Good. Well, I, it, it, it doesn't work with the paper. It doesn't work with the paper mask. The integrity of the fibers in the paper mask don't tolerate getting wet and then drying very well. So, uh, unfortunately, you have to do it with with just the cloth mask. Uh huh. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Okay, and and you say in terms of the overnight, so that you do have to let the mask sit a, a while after you sprayed it, of course, because it's moist. Now, then, then the other question is, is that you know there you are, you've been out out and about in the world, and you possibly have encountered some viral particles somewhere, and now it's li living on the surface of the mask. So, certainly, you're you're su you're suggesting that we very carefully take the mask off and not touch the surface of the mask because it's possible that the viral particles have not yet had a chance to become integrated with the salt in such a way. So do you have anything to say about that particular issue? Like you, you, you come home, you've got your clothes on, you've got your mask on. 
What should we do? You know, it, 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 it reaches into a mental health issue, quite frankly. Um, okay. Uh, obsessive compulsive disease and condition. So one, <laughs> one of the challenges with an invisible one of the challenges with an invisible killer is it's invisible. Right. And therefore, it, it, it plays to the worst fears that we have. You know, doorknobs, handles, all, you know, so um, I, I, I believe you can be too excessive in your care. Okay. Um, so, okay, so, so, what, so what, what do I do? So I wear a cloth mask to the movies. We come home, right. uh, and I, I want to throw it in the washing machine. The, washing, the door is open. Right. Uh, so I grab it by the ears, I take it off, and I throw it in. I don't touch the surface, and then I walk to the kitchen sink and wash my hands. Right. Um, I have not been someone who washed my hands every time I come into my house, but now I do. Every time I go into the world and come back to the house, I open the door, I close the door, I walk to the kitchen sink, because we have a small apartment, and uh, and wash my hands, and I'm done with it. Right. But, um, you know, you, you, you don't have to get too, too worried. Uh, what what I what is missing in the literature, which would really help me a lot, is what is the lowest number of particles you need to get infected? I know it is not one virus in your nose. I know it's not ten. I know it's not a hundred. What I don't know, and 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 the reason, and and, and the reason I know that is because the reason you get disease, the reason you get to go to the hospital, the reason you die is because you lose you lose the race. The virus is growing as fast as it can, and your immune system is moving as fast as it can to identify the virus and to kill it. And if your immune system goes fast enough, you don't get sick. If the immune system goes a little slower, you get sick, but don't go in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So you're basically slowing it down. So there is a, there is a virus load below which you will never know you have a disease. Your immune system will know. The immune system will kill it. The immune system may not get excited enough to prevent a reinfection, but, but, you know, this kind of thinking. And so, in fact, the drugs I'm developing at Atosa and the drugs that are out there, the, the primary job is to slow it down enough to let the immune system do the job. Nothing humans do is going to stop this short of your own immune system. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the thing to remember. You just want to slow it down. You want to give yourself five, seven, ten days. That's the range for an immune system response, five, seven, ten, um, to get it done. And the reason you don't get an infection the second time with a vaccine or something is your immune system is down to one or two days once it's been primed, and the virus never has a chance. So uh -huh. that's the game that's going on inside your body. And that's a very important discrimination because I think our listeners would not likely have been told that. And, and, and you repeatedly through the book in a very polite way, you talk about how the media has sort of missed the point in, in many ways. And they, they're, they're not telling our their listeners exactly as you as you exactly have you said and of course you also say in this book that that uh, the virus is not going to be the complete solution so i do want to talk about that but i don't want to talk about that yet so um okay let, but let's let's talk I, about i think you meant that i think you now, just to be sure, I think you meant that the vaccine will not be the complete solution. Yes, that's what it's I... Virus, so just, oh, yeah, no, excuse me, yes, the vaccine will not be the complete solution. Thank you for correcting me. Now, the, you, your manual gives us the background of human pandemics in the past. What pieces of that information might be especially useful for the public to know about today's situation? Well, um... <laughs> It, you know, it, 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 it might be related to, um, to just, just knowing where this fits in the, in the scheme of things. 
uh, you know, I don't memorize this stuff. Yeah, there it is on page 25. So yeah, so when I when I wrote this, this I think was around the 14th or 15th worst pandemic. It's now it has it has jumped uh, the 18th century plague and the Japanese smallpox, but um, this is this is by no means the worst thing we've had. You know, it's, it's down there around 15. Um, and that's a tribute. That is a tribute to modern medicine in, in many, many ways. Um, it's also a tribute to, you know, to the mass. So uh, the Black Death in the 1300s that killed 200 million people. Uh, people knew to cover their mouths with cloth at that time. That was that was standard operating procedure. So when our Surgeon General in February said, "Yeah, you don't need a mask. It's, it's stupid. Don't don't go out and get them." Wow. You know, I just. Uh, <laughs> well, I cringed and I went back to writing the book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I cringed and went back to writing the book. All right, well, good for you. So now, you tell us about zoonosis or zoo disease. What does that mean and, and what should humans better, what would a human better grasp of that vector of disease transmission? How, how would we benefit from knowing about that a little bit more than we do? Well, yeah, I mean, it, um, it, it's, it's, you know, I guess it's especially useful your, your doctors and your scientists and your public health people that want to prevent them. But um, just just to be totally scientific now for a second, uh, a zoonosis is a disease with uh, from uh, an animal with a backbone and uh, to humans. So, for example, uh, is malaria a zoonosis? No. Uh, mosquitoes, little tiny mosquitoes, do not have a backbone. Right. Uh, so, uh, so it, it would not be a zoonosis. But the the first SARS back in 2003, the camel vector in 2015. Uh, there was a, a, a pig disease in China that killed about. A, they ended up killing five million pigs about three or four years ago. All of these are zoonosis, where the the vector is a is an animal in the world that has a virus that doesn't really kill it, doesn't maybe even make it sick. But the virus is everywhere in that animal species, and then it gets a mutation, and then it gets an opportunity to jump to a human, uh, and it does that, and the rest is history, as they say. So it's a, it's a classification of a disease. It probably is not critical to your readers. Um, the, so the, the inside virology theory on this virus is that it came from nature directly to man. The, the other theory is that it came from nature to a laboratory. Uh, in China and then to man, uh, you know, and there's evidence on both sides of that. I can I can get into that if you want to, but it's probably not the topic today. But I think I think that's as much. So, um, you know, in China they have a practice of what are called wet markets, where they have a you know they have a multi-century culture in which they like to go. You know, not like us when you go to Costco or something. You you know you pick your mar you pick your food your meat and it's wrapped in cellophane, you look through the cellophane, you like what you see, and you buy it. Uh, in China's markets, they, they want to see the live animals sometimes. And so they'll, they'll pick one of two or three animals in a cage, and, and then the, 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 the man or the woman there will butcher it right in front of them and put it in a bag, and they'll take it home to cook it. So um, those situations lend themselves, uh, you know, to, to a, a live virus and a live animal going to a live human pretty easily. Mm -hmm. um, industrial meat production has its problems, but, but one of them, one of the things they, they try to address is is making sure that diseases in the animals don't get into the, don't stay in the meat or, or get into the meat in levels that are harmful to humans. So, well, what, uh, that, what, that, that's background on zoonosis. Right. Well, 
why I, I guess why that was important to me anyway was is that you also make the point that that with humans sort of taking up so much space in the world and and being not very conscious of what they're doing to the other living creatures in the world that the I'm not sure, I'm not going to put words in your mouth maybe but uh, that 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 this is a consequence of of the way we live in the world, and so the, and that our contact with with, uh, with with animals, particularly wild animals, offers a greater ever greater uh, opportunity for this jumping of viruses, and and since we can travel so so easily, you know, in 24 hours we can be anywhere on the earth. Uh, this this makes the whole potential and the 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 likelihood of of. Of, of a pandemic to spread easily much, much more severe. But anyway, let's not take too much more time with that. You, you also teach us about building resistance and you talk about, you know, forced vital capacity. So share with us, if you would, about that and the, the logic and the need for respiratory muscle training and something about how that's achieved. Yeah, and then, I, you know, I think in terms of my total, when I, when I think about the book and its contribution, right. Uh, you know, to help people, you know, stay out of the hospital and stay alive and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I do want to, I would do want to emphasize that I think this is one of the more important chapters that I put in there. Right. So we we all know that with SARS, uh, with with COVID nineteen, it seems to really pick on the elderly, uh, and it picks on the elderly also who have pre pre existing conditions, which is part of getting old. <laughs> there may be there may be no difference. And so, in fact, I, I, I almost challenge the pre-existing condition issue, maybe except with diabetes, where it does affect the immune system, and focus more on the vital capacity in the lungs and the ability to clear the lungs. So what, what does our body do with, with, um, with bacteria, with viruses that are in the world? Because, you know, as you know, we've, we've lived these millions of years with our lungs being basically exposed to everything in the air. You breathe in, you breathe out, right. and you've, 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 you've taken in everything in the room, right, that, that's there. So um, so the lungs are your first line of defense even before that five- to seven-day period when the, when the immune system kicks in. So what do the lungs do? Well, the lungs have two functions. They produce mucus that is a mechanical a thick, viscous, mechanical thing. Remember, the coronavirus can't swim, can't do any backstrokes, it can't run, it can't do anything. Uh, it moves passively through through liquids. So if it gets stuck in mucus, it's stuck in music, mucus. But then the second step, of course, is the mucus can't just sit there in the lungs. You've got to get it out. And so um, being able to breathe deeply, being able to clear your lungs with high-velocity coughing, um, which requires strong respiratory muscles, is critical. And, you know, pneumonia is a disease of, of old... I mean, I was told in med school it was the old man's friend. I had it one time when I was at Stanford, pneumonia. Nothing friendly about pneumonia. Nothing very friendly, uh, exactly, you're awake, yeah. You're, you're awake, but you're drowning 24-7, so, so that's not friendly. But nonetheless, so um, the, the key to staying out of the hospital is not being young, it's having uh, strong, large lung capacity and strong respiratory muscle. Um, and so once you say that, once you say, okay, yeah, I want my muscles that, that, may, that help me cough strongly to be strong, Where, which, which machine in the gym do I use to exercise those muscles? Guess what? There isn't one. And even, even really high-intensity you know, yoga or high-intensity biking doesn't really do it because when you're breathing naturally without resistance, 
uh, it's not challenging to the muscles between your ribs. So, so basically, the spare ribs that you eat, you know, with uh, with mashed potatoes, is the set of muscles that are responsible for keeping you alive, keeping you without not getting pneumonia. So, the only way to exercise those is to give them resistance. And so there's actually some little devices. I actually talk about one in the book that I bought a couple of years ago because I'm an asthmatic. And I, and I found that by exercising my, my respiratory muscles, I could actually stop using my asthma medication. And when you look at the literature, what these little devices can do, it, it basically keeps people from going on ventilators after surgery. It's, it's a phenomenal uh, outcome for you know, a, a, 20, a, a $20 piece of plastic. Um, because uh, what it does is it trains your muscles. So uh, even in the face, and, and, so it, and, and even in studies that show training for 10 days or less. So, you know, even if you're feeling bad, you should start using one of these, but especially if you, if you can use one, uh, you know, prophylactically beforehand, um, you, you, can, you can help yourself in a great, in a great way. I mean, I have, a, I have another book inside me, which is How to Get Your Organs to Act Like They're Younger. Uh, and so... So uh, one, one of the things I talk about in the book is a piece of that where your lung, the age of your lungs is measured by your vital capacity, it's something you can do in a laboratory. And so, in fact, using this machine, you can make your, your lung 5, 10, 15, 20 years long, younger in a matter of a couple of weeks. Which is just, and which so, is, which is uh, just, which is just stunning. And, and uh, I, I was so interested in that whole topic that I went around and looked online. And it turned out I found a different version of a, a, a breathing trainer uh, called uh, Endurance, which was, I think, which which got better reviews than the one that you mentioned in the book. But at the same time, it, I've been using it now daily as a as a way of strengthening my 76-year-old lungs. So it's definitely showing its value already. And, and you're suggesting in the book, this is something that that if we're seeking to really uh, res, you know respond to the situation we're in, this was this which could be and should be very likely a, one of the daily exercises that we do. I do, Ned. I do, and, and of course, influenza has always been with us, and it's a it's a pulmonary disease. SARS is a pulmonary disease. Uh, other pneumonias are a pulmonary disease, and I believe all of them can be mitigated uh, by by having ha by having strong you know strong lungs. Now, right. look, can a twenty year old die from a from a weird strep pneumonia? Absolutely, because it overwhelms even the twenty year old lungs. But we're, again, we're talking eighty twenty here, and so most. Most uh, of the respiratory pneumonias uh, don't 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 affect the 20 year old. It affects the older folks, and, and it is strictly, I believe, the fact that your the muscles between your ribs are, have never been exercised. There's no other way to exercise them, and they're weak. Well, I, <laughs> and I they I, are weak. I think that the one that's for me the, the that's the, the one of the other major pieces of this book is that that very body of information that you've just shared with us. We need to take another break, uh, Stephen. So we're talking to uh, Dr. Stephen Quay, Staying Safe, a Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Welcome back. Dr. Nethoke today joined by Dr. Stephen Quay, Staying Safe, a Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus. Now, Steve, I, I'm hoping we could get into some of the some more of the particulars in the book itself. Uh, one of the things that you, you know, actually, before <laughs> I'm running around here, but 
you had a, a NAC, a, a, a NAC and heparin treatment protocol. Where did that go? Did that go anywhere? And what, what do you have to say about it today? Yeah, so um, w one, of the, one of the ways that I believe you can, you can mitigate this virus uh, uh, for people in the hospital, people are on ventilators, is to block its entry into the cells in the lung. We don't go into the details, but uh, a two-drug combination seems to, to fit that bill. Uh, and Atosa Therapeutics is developing such a such a treatment. Um, and you know, I can't I can't go into the, the details of where we are here uh, because we're a public company. But uh, I am strongly encouraged that this will be an, an important contribution to. Um, to the to the treatment of you know more severe patients. Luckily, we're having fewer and fewer severe patients, but nonetheless, um, uh, there's going to be a, I think an important role for this for this two drug combination. It, it, it's nebulized, so you make a you make a fog out of it with a machine, and, and you either breathe it through a, a face mask or you you actually put it into a ventilator in a patient. But uh, we we believe that it will uh, strongly mitigate the disease. Uh, again, like going back to what I said earlier, it, basically you're buying time for the patient's immune system to, to catch it. But uh, you know, I think it I think it can largely uh, stop the infection in the lungs. Right. So you you see it as a treatment. I mean, this is this is not a prophylactic uh, preventative. It's a it's a treatment post post diagnosis. That's correct. Yes. So so when you breathe them in, the the chemicals uh, coat the coat the lungs. And then over the course of, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12 hours, they get absorbed into the body and excreted. Both of them are, are, are already used uh, in patients, so they, their excretion is well-known and safe. So you, you, you couldn't really use it prophylactically. I mean, you can't, you can't nebulize it every day like a, you know, like a patient would. So it's only used for treatment. Right. So, you, you, again, you're forthright about why a vaccine won't be the solution. Now, we did cover a little of this, but I, I'd kind of like to circle back to that and put a, you know, kind of put a circle around it so our listeners can really feel, because, of course, we're so, um, uh, we're so overwhelmed with the public discussion on the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine, the, it's coming, the vaccine is coming. The va it's, it's, and, and yet you're saying that this, and you said it earlier, this is not going to be the solution, but say a little bit more about that and kind of why that's so. Well, look, and I, I don't want to predict the future, and I don't want to be a doomsayer. Uh, I just want to use the facts from the past to try to be to, to point to where we might end up. But um, in, in number one, uh, there are uh, at least six different diseases that involve a coronavirus or a coronavirus-like uh, infection in which uh, vaccines were attempted, and they and they all failed for a very characteristic process called antibody-enhanced uh, disease. Um, the FDA is looking, so the FDA put out guidelines last week and I, and I actually updated a post uh, on, on, on what the guidelines pointed to and the, and the FDA is looking very carefully for this particular condition. So, so that's kind of point number one. Um, point number two is we know now from the natural, so, Every vaccine tries to be as good as the, as the natural infection. Uh, the natural infection is arguably, if you you know, when you live through it, you have the best immunity because you, 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 you know, the virus tried to kill you and it didn't work. Uh, we're not finding that, that with this particular coronavirus, the immunity fades. 
uh, at least for the for the antibody part of it, maybe not the cellular, the T cell part of it, but at least the antibody phase, and people are being reinfected with new viruses, um, and that's that's being seen all the time. So, number one, there's never been a coronavirus vaccine made because of some technical issues with the viruses, so that's a challenge. Number two is uh, we know that the best vaccine in the world for coronavirus is the virus itself, and we know that most people don't show strong immunities, you know, a few months or even six months later uh, and are getting reinfected. Uh, and we know they're getting reinfected. We know by looking at the, at, the, at the viruses that it's a new virus because it has mutations that couldn't possibly have, have come from inside their body. So when you ask, when somebody gets an infection and, they, and then they get, they get well and they get another infection, they, the, the two choices are, well, did the infection just go subclinical and they had it for the whole time, or is it really a new infection? And you can answer that by looking inside the, the, uh, the, the, the booklet of the virus, the gene of the virus, and you can say, no, this, this virus is a new one. You've never seen this one before. So we're seeing a lot of that. So, um, you know, the FDA has set a hurdle of 50% effectiveness for the vaccine as the requirement for approval. You know, I think a salt-covered mask probably gets you to 95%. Uh, so I, I really, you know, you know, 50% is not exactly, uh, uh, you know, an earth-shattering uh, efficacy. And, and we will know the actual efficacy when it comes out, but, but, but that, doesn't, that doesn't bode well. Right. Uh, on the safety side, of course, vaccines have to have side effects, you know, that are fewer than 1 in 100,000, 1 in a million, because... You know, if there's a fatal side effect at one in a million, you're going to kill 300 million people with a with a vaccine. If it's one in 100,000, you're going to kill, uh, you know, uh, you're going to kill 30, you know, 30,000 in the U.S. So, vaccines need to be incredibly safe. Here's a little tip: a little tip for your your people if they want to become uh, armchair scientists. Good. When you do when you, when you see a vaccine clinical trial, look at the number of patients being tested. Multiply by that number by three, and that's the chance you have of finding a side effect that occurs in the population. So, so here's an example. If you study 30,000 people with a vaccine, which is an incredibly huge study, massive study, millions and millions of dollars to study 30,000, that's, that's what's being done now. Multiply that by three, you get 90,000. So what that means is, is if there is a fatal side effect that happens one in 100,000 people, which, again, in, in the U.S. population, that would be 30,000 deaths from the vaccination. You're going to miss it in your trial. Mm, wow. That's, that's pretty, pretty uh, uh, shocking information. You, 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 you mentioned a thing called pulmonary toilet. I don't want to leave the conversation without having you give a synopsis of what pulmonary toilet really means. Because you give a lot of good direction with that. Yeah, it's a it's a term from the, the the early part of the last century, 100 years ago. I like it because it really uh, no nobody nobody is going to not want to have therapy. They say, look, you got stuff in your lungs, uh, and, uh, and and you know it's like a pulmonary toilet, so we need to clean it out. People say, oh, I got a toilet in my lungs. What do I have to do to get rid of it? So, right. So, but it's it's re it's really just high quality nursing care. So. Um, the, the best example we all may know about is, is kids with cystic fibrosis, where the, the mucus in their lungs is too thick. So it's got to be thick enough to stop the viruses, but it can't be too thick. You can't get rid of it. And so these kids 
even with the, with the best muscles in their chest, can't get rid of it. And so what their parents have to do is pound their back, turn them upside down on the couch, pound their back to get rid of it. So pulmonary toilet involves sort of two aspects. One, you want to get the you want to get the mucus as thin as possible by whatever means you can. And so the two ways to make it thin is to drink a lot of water, and I'm talking about ounces and ounces, quarts and quarts of water till your urine is absolutely clear. Uh, and I'm talking about standing in a steamy shower. So getting, getting it uh, thinned out with water that gets absorbed by the mucus as you breathe fog. If you breathe the a hot fog from the shower, you're, you're, you're making your mucus thinner. If you drink tons and tons of water, you're making your mucus thinner. So that's, that's step number one. And step number two is then to use gravity and people pounding on your back to help you get it out. And then, of course, the muscles in your chest have to cough it at the end of the day. So pulmonary toilet is a process of hydration in the mouth, standing in the shower to get it into the lungs, and, and then hanging upside down so the gravity plus somebody beating your back can, can get it to where you can cough it up. And then you spit it out, and it's ugly, and it's smelly, and you get rid of it. But if you want to save your life, that may be what you have to do. And so that, that's one of your uh, at-home at kind of the gifts of, your, of this, the manual teaching is that this is one of the things that our, that our families can do for each other. And sort of, sort of instead of sitting home and sort of waiting to see what happens if and when when they've 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 got the the virus and they they're trying to you know just sort of ride it out, this is one of the things that they can do as a routine matter. So we just got a couple more minutes, Steve. So just the last thing I'm going to ask about is the the you do say something about dietary things and supplements and that kind of thing. So just in a few words, what do you have to offer our listeners on that topic? Yeah. So the um, you know, in the book, I, res I made myself be restricted to peer-reviewed papers that show efficacy for, for, for dietary supplements or things before I would, I would write them in there, and I try to give some of the evidence behind them. So um, there, there seems to be a correlation with vitamin D. Uh, it's a great vitamin. Most people are deficient. Uh, our sun tanning, uh, you know, uh, scare, whatever it is, you know, nobody's getting skin cancers that are benign, but they're, but they're not getting vitamin D, which is essential for immune response. So take your vitamin D. Don't take more than 5,000 units a day. It's fat-soluble, so you can store it and, and get side effects if you get, you know, 30 or 40,000 times uh, units a day. But a good source of vitamin D, uh, it, it was talked about as being, uh, it was identified as being, you know, in bone growth. So that's, that's what it's attributed to, but it actually has more function in the, uh, in the immune system. Right. Uh, my old favorite, vitamin C, is always good. Um, uh, this, is, this is an important bit of information. So we don't make vitamin C, but other animals do. And so one of the things I looked at was, well, okay, if primates know how to make vitamin C and they make the amount that's right for a primate uh, for a monkey, how much vitamin C should we take to get that same blood level that monkeys get? Uh, and the answer is a couple grams a day. Uh-huh, okay. The answer is a couple grams a day. So uh, the, US, USS, the USDA says, you know, take enough vitamin C so you don't get scurvy. Well, heck, you know, that, that, you know that's milligrams. That's just tiny amounts. One, one, lime, one lime a month would keep a limey, which was the name for a sailor, uh, you know, from getting scurvy so he could be at sea for months and months. But uh, I, I like a couple of grams a day of vitamin C. Okay. Uh, and then there's, you know, there's some other vitamins that have less, uh, you know, that have some less impact. Or in the book, um, 
a good a good multivitamin is just something you buy. It in the worst case, it's expensive urine, so you pee it out if you <laughs> if you're not using it. And in the best case, it gives you a, a slight benefit. Right. You do mention the knack as well, don't you? Or or or, or would you not suggest? I absolutely that? do. I absolutely do. Uh, right. No, no. I, I apologize. Yeah, I didn't know how much time we had. It so. So oral and acylcysteine, which is the oral version of the thing we're putting in our in our uh, in our uh, mist in our uh, nebulized product, um, is absolutely essential for uh, for causing this virus to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't want to get too sciencey here, but the spikes are like those towers, those radio towers in Texas. You know, they're you know 500 feet tall and they broadcast all over the Midwest. And uh, the wires that hold up the tower are held together by things that NAC breaks. So, so basically, if you take your NAC, you will break all the wires around the tower of the virus, and then the virus, all it takes is a breeze, a small breeze, and the tower falls over. So scientific publish in the literature, NAC will stop this virus from infecting cells. Wonderful. Period, end of story. Okay, well, good. Okay, we're, well, we're, we are out of time. Uh, Steve, our, I know our listeners are going to want to tune in to you more. So talk about your your podcast, your mention your website. Give our listeners some ways of, of hearing more from you. Yeah, so my website www.drqay.com. You can you can buy the book there. It's in Kindle form and in, in paperback form there. Uh, and I put up blogs on, on interesting information. I mean, I, I had some friends contact me. Why aren't you talking about COVID anymore? And I said, look at. Until I, until there's something that somebody says that's not in my book, you know, I, I you know, I don't feel a need to talk about it. So when the Wall Street Journal last week said, "Hey, maybe vitamin D is important for COVID," I said, "Well, guys, you know, it's in the book four months ago." Uh, I'm glad the Wall Street finally caught up with me. But uh, yeah, go to my site there and sign up for for blogs. I am going to be pushing out. Uh, so I published a paper that showed that COVID came to the U.S. in the first week of January. I identify that with a particular algorithm, and I'm going to be telling people if I see uh, if I see another spike coming in of, of any virus because my algorithm picks up all the unknown viruses that eventually get a name like SARS-CoV-2 uh, because they all show up in in a, in a particular way in the particular CDC reading. So uh, every Thursday I'll be putting out an announcement, kind of like the the Smokey the Bear when you go up to the mountains. You know, is it is it safe to have fires or not? I'll tell you whether it's green, yellow, or red. Every week, uh, if you sign up for my for my push blogs, and, and again, give the the name and the uh, the address of that, if you would. So it's www.drquay.com. So drquay.com. Dr. Quay, we're so grateful for your book, and we're so grateful again that you took the time for us. What a pleasure to have you. Thank no you. No problem. I appreciate it. Uh, stay safe. Okay. Take care now. Bye bye now.